Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. Lord, don't let us just gather information. Set our hearts on fire. Set our souls on fire. Cleanse our minds. Renew our vision. Awaken us to the hour in which we're living and equip us, Lord, to do what you've called us to do. Not only in the world, but, but right in front of us, in our own homes, in our own lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. The title of these lectures is The Crisis in Western Civilization. There's an old hymn entitled Day is Dying in the West. It was an evening hymn of worship and peace written in the last century. But a title like Day is Dying in the West in our era doesn't bring scenes of peaceful sunsets to our imaginations, but rather a scene of diminishing light and descending darkness resulting in the blackest night. A more appropriate hymn might go, Day is dying in the West, twilight is descending, foolishness now sits enthroned, judgment is impending, spirits calling from the East promise a new age of peace, but the dove will be a beast. Night is falling in the West. Amid loudest celebrations of peace and safety, we face the darkest time of Western civilization. Yet many of the social scientists that I have read after and talked to personally speak of this terrible milieu of near economic collapse, epidemic addictions, family disintegration, and moral insanity as, quote, trends that have come and gone before, end quote. We seem to learn nothing from even the present situation that we're in, or history, or the warnings of Scripture. The Apostle Paul warns us that at a time of apparent peace and safety, sudden destruction is coming. The prophet Jeremiah lamented the falseness of the leaders of his day who had, quote, healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly or cosmetically, crying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And worse still, Jeremiah says that the people wanted it that way. Jeremiah was one of the mock names shouted by a passive and blind British parliament on September 30th, 1938, when amid a mindless euphoria of celebration of peace in their world, Winston Churchill cried out to them, quote, the people should know that we have sustained a defeat this day without war. They should know that we have passed an awful milestone in our history, that the terrible words have for the time being been pronounced against the Western democracies. You are weighed in the balance and found wanting. And do not suppose that this is the end. This is only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the first sip, the foretaste of a bitter cup which will be proffered to us year by year unless by a supreme recovery of moral health and martial vigor we arise again and take our stand for freedom as we have done in olden days. End quote. Churchill's words eventually rallied England and all of the West, but now they warn us again. The clear and present danger of World War II was crushed, but it was only a matter of months before another dark force began swallowing countries whole. After World War II, a spiritual awakening occurred to some degree. The ministries of Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, and a host of other evangelists moved across the United States and Europe. The church began to experience an awakening, but not to the point of national or international revival. By the end of the 40s, churches had increased, Israel had become a nation, and the whole world seemed in a new era of peace and safety. Though, the early, though by the early days of the 1950s, we were marred again by the Korean War, 
Nothing really discounted or diminished the happy days of the Eisenhower era, however. America began to enjoy a prosperity that, sur that surpassed all in the, in the rest of the world. We were also the political leaders of the new era of peace. There was a vision of clear right and wrong in World War II that gave Americans a sense of purpose and even, for lack of a better word, a sense of righteousness. Now, there's a danger of oversimplifying our view of history here. Time will not allow us in a setting like this to adequately examine all of the dynamics that participated in the change of worldview that has brought us where we are now as a people. This approach we are taking would seem unforgivably simple-minded to a historian or a political observer, but with all due respect to their perspectives, we are going to bypass what we believe to be secondary issues, no matter how historically or politically profound they seem to be and look at the devolution into the present darkness from the view of the prophetic and from the view of the Holy Spirit. The prophet Ezekiel, quoting the word of the Lord in Ezekiel chapter 16, gives a startling definition of the sin of Sodom. Startling because it doesn't even mention those sins which normally identify Sodom as the root of our English word sodomy. Rather, it speaks of the sin of Sodom as, quote, abundance of food, abundance of idle time, and pride. The context of this statement could be paraphrased as being, quote, O Israel, Sodom was full of prosperity and pride, and their arrogance drove them into unthankfulness and revelry and finally into total idolatry. But compared to you, Israel, they look clean to me because they didn't have what you have or know what you know, yet you have become more adept at the kind of evil they practiced than they were. Nothing is more striking than the arrogance of America over the past 30 years. In 1962, we officially decreed God was out of our educational system. Now, a footnote here. Regardless of the comparative even-handedness some attribute to that first Supreme Court ruling concerning prayer in school as a necessary constitutional protection for those who may be forced to pray, it is clear from the continuing unfolding of events in regard to religious freedom what the spirit of that original decree was. We have come under the just judgment of God since that decree. The nation that forgets God shall be turned into hell Scripture decrees. First Peter also states that when judgment is not swift, a false sense of security can creep in. We tend to think of judgment in apocalyptic terms as flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, engulfing shrouds of darkness, but not so, not yet anyway. Possibly the most fearful aspect of being under the just judgment of Almighty God is that you don't know that you are and don't care that you are, or that you could be. God's gracious revelation of himself being withheld, the Holy Spirit inspiring awareness of sin unavailable, God speaking a final word to a nation, not of invitation, but a final and irreversible divorce, leaving them blissfully ignorant of their impending doom. That is the most terrible judgment of all. As C.S. Lewis has said, quote, the most horrible four words a man or woman or nation could hear from the lips of God are, Thy will be done. Russell Kirk has said, quote, A good many people fret themselves over the rather improbable speculation that the earth may be blown asunder by nuclear weapons. 
The grimmer and more immediate prospect is that men and women may be reduced to a subhuman state through limitless indulgence in their own vices with ruinous consequences to our civilization. Theologian Dr. Donald Blausch shook the sensibilities of evangelicals of every stripe when he suggested that maybe God himself is bringing about the moral and spiritual desolation that is so rampant today, bringing judgment upon a corrupt society and a corrupt church so that out of the ruins he might raise up what he meant the church to be. Dr. Blesch says, quote, From a purely sociological point of view, the age we are living in may be described as post-Christian. But from the perspective of eternity, it may actually be pre-Christian. No society or civilization in the past was ever thoroughly Christian. And the Bible predicts a a latter-day outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the final days of history. It may well be that the demise of Western civilization contains the seed for the rebirth of vital and living Christianity. We may actually be witnessing the death and resurrection of the church. Notice that Dr. Blouse doesn't seem to identify the charismatic renewal of the past 20 years or the Jesus movement of the early 70s as any kind of fulfillment of Joel's last day's prophecy about pouring. And well, he should not. Now, most of us who came to Christ during that period Uh, or even if we didn't come to Christ during that period, even if we were already Christians, almost every one of us in this room have heard sermons uh, connecting Joel chapter 2 to the events in the United States uh, in reference to the Holy Spirit. But Joel chapter 2 is a far larger and more awesome picture than what we've seen in our country in the last few years. Though millions have been saved and blessed by God's Spirit during this period, it can hardly be seen as the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. A beginning of it, maybe, but certainly not a fulfillment. In spite of God's abundant mercy and grace on the American church, we have made no significant inroad for godliness in our society. If anything, we have become more worldly. Divorce in America is 65%. Among Christians, the figure is better, 63%. The TV evangelist scandals, which continue to be held open to the view of the world, not so much by the media's insistence on keeping a view on it, but because some of the participants in the scandals keep themselves in the view of the world by suing each other and accusing each other of uh, slander, only slander Jesus himself. Pastoral and counseling ministries are overrun in the church today, ministering to the sexually and emotionally abused, many of whom were raised by their parents in those church denominational systems. The TV preacher scandals were only public icons of a more pernicious private enterprise of darkness going on in scores of homes and church offices around the Western world. Pastors and youth leaders falling to private and secret sexual sin, and the list goes on and on. We don't need to enumerate all the symptoms of the fact that we are in terrible decline. It's hardly what you would call revival. It's actually the opposite. Beside the secret sins, the open egotistical kingdom building and drive towards power manifested in so many Christian leaders in cultic control of people's lives, accumulation of millions of dollars, complete disregard for the true heart of the command of Jesus to go and minister. This is a subject we will examine more in another lecture. But all of these point to uh, uh, the demise 
of anything like a, a revival. Uh, we are in more trouble in this country than any other nation on earth, though we are more prosperous. This is why I mentioned Ezekiel chapter 16 a while ago. Uh, this is the sin of your sister Sodom, abundance of food, abundance of idle time, and pride. Uh, that's not the estimation we would mo- most of us would give of the, of the sin of Sodom, is it? You ask anybody who's been raised in evangelical America what the sin of Sodom was, and immediately they'll say homosexuality <laughs> or some kind of sexual perversion. But isn't it funny how the Lord goes right to the heart of the issue? God puts his finger right on it. He says, listen, this was the sin. That was just the symptom. This was the sin. And when you realize that, and then you look at where we are as a nation, it should bring you to your knees. Instead of the Jesus movement and subsequent charismatic renewal confronting a decadent and humanistic culture with the message of the cross, the message of the cross was soft-pedaled and then changed to accommodate the soft, fleshly-minded culture of humanistic America. The number of offended former Jesus people who are bitterly resentful that God did not accommodate their expectations for health, wealth, fame, or happiness is very high and rising. A crossless gospel had not prepared them for the baptism of fire that followed. And as Jesus warned what happened in Mark chapter 4, when persecution or affliction hit, they fell away. Yet this crossless Christianity is still with us, still seeking a, flower, a, 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 a platform from which to exhibit itself. Not long ago, I was speaking with a friend who is a, mov- a movie producer in Hollywood, He had been asked by a major film company to find some good scripts with a spiritual perspective since with the popularity of recent movies that have had an other world theme, this is what they would produce also. My friend saw a chance for a clear Christian perspective to find center stage but was unable to use any of ten scripts submitted by Christian script writers because they were either too poorly written or too pornographic. When he confronted these writers, they simply claimed they were just trying to get their foot in the door by being culturally relevant. It's obvious that the issue here is not really relevance, but personal profit at the expense of moral integrity. The logic is, I sleep with prostitutes in order to get my foot in the door so I can lead them to Jesus. Francis Schaeffer, responding to this kind of spiritual impotence, said, quote, With such values, will men stand for their liberties? Will they not give up their liberties step by step, inch by inch, as long as their own personal peace and prosperity is sustained and not challenged, and as long as their goods are delivered? The lifestyles of the young and the old are very different. There are tensions between long hair and short hair, drugs and non-drugs, but both embrace the same basic values, personal peace and affluence. Much of the church is no help here either because for so long a large section of the church has only taught a relativistic, relativistic excuse me, humanism using religious terminology. I believe that the majority of the silent majority, young and old, will sustain the loss of their liberties without raising their voices as long as their own lifestyles are not threatened. And since personal peace and affluence are so often the only values that count with the majority, politicians know that to be elected they must promise these things. 
Politicians have largely become no longer men of ideals. Increasingly, men and women are not stirred by the values of liberty and truth, but of supplying a constituency with a frosting of personal peace and affluence. They know that voices will not be raised as long as people have these things, or at least the illusion of them. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, commenting on on the America that he found when he first came here, says, The forces of evil have begun their decisive offensive. You can feel their pressure, yet your movie screens and your publications are full of smiles and raised glasses. What's all the joy about? Now, tonight we're painting a very dark picture. It's very difficult for the prophetic ministry, and I'm called the prophetic ministry more than teaching. It's very difficult for the prophetic ministry to stand by and look at the good things. The prophetic ministry cries while the church is laughing and laughs while the church is crying. Not because it doesn't love the church, but because it's called to see a little further down the road. And I am cursed or blessed, depending on how you look at it, with a a tendency to see not the good that is happening, but the bad that can destroy that good. Now, any parent raises their children that way. There is an awareness always of vigilance, of watching down the road, making preparation for what may or may not not happen, but uh, uh, being wise enough to maintain a certain degree of vigilance. The church in the United States is not prophetic. It's pathetic. For the most part, the church in the United States has so acquiesced to the spirit of the age that we can't speak with authority. We don't speak from the throne of God. We, we speak from a view of uh, hyper-Republicans on the fundamentalist side, hyper-Democrats on the social, on the, uh, uh, the, the liberal side. Uh, the liberals are screaming for social reform. The fundamentalists are screaming for moral reform. And nobody is speaking for God. Uh, the personal kingdom building that goes on in the private enterprises of many charismatic leaders uh, uh, is so decadent, so obviously lustful in its attempt to gain control, not over uh, uh, people's, uh, not, not meeting people's needs, but controlling their lives and attempting to uh, bring them under, like what I call imperialistic Christianity, where we bring you under our control because you don't have sense enough to walk with God on your own. Uh, not because we love you, but because we want you to become a cog in our machinery. Uh, th- that's, that horror story is repeated so often in Western Christianity that uh, I hate to even bring it up. Uh, it saps my energy to talk about it. But we need to talk about it. And before this class is over, we will have spent a good deal of time discussing the, the, the masculine drive toward power, that motivation in the male particularly, but now is showing up in the female in our culture, that drive to conquer, that drive to rule. Uh, And uh, it's dangerous to see that drive toward power in any man, regardless of his work. But when it shows up in the pulpit, it is particularly pernicious, very dangerous. C.S. Lewis said, uh, if a man is a tyrant, that's bad. But if he's a religious tyrant, he's the worst of all. 
because just a normal tyrant believes that his authority is his own, and if he kills you, he does himself a service. But a religious tyrant, if he kills you, does God a service. And religious tyrants have shown up all through history, but they've shown up in the last few years in the charismatic renewal with a frightening degree of rapidity. So we're going to probably spend one entire section just on the subject of uh, the loss of true spiritual leadership and what has filled the vacuum of true spiritual leadership in the form of, uh, of men driven to build their own kingdoms. And why God allows that. God does allow it. I guess you have noticed that. He does allow it. And the reason he allows it is because he expects his people to become spiritually minded enough to discern that kind of control and bring it under proper uh, correction. Now, Chuck Colson says, quote, The old assurances are still around us. Bright flags snapping in the breeze. Marble monuments to nobility and permanence, pomp and ceremony amid the circumstances. Yet a crisis of immense proportion is upon us. Not from the threat of nuclear holocaust or a stock market collapse. Not from the greenhouse effect or trade deficits. Not from east-west relations or ferment in the Middle East. Though all these represent serious problems, in the end, they are alone. they alone will not be our undoing. The crisis that threatens us, the force that could topple our monuments and destroy our very foundation is within ourselves. The crisis is in the character of our culture where values that restrain inner vices and develop inner virtues are eroding. Unprincipled men and women, disdainful of their moral heritage, skeptical of truth itself, are destroying our civilization by weakening the very pillars on which it rests. Now, the flow of our culture, the foundation of American culture, comes down to us, just not spiritually speaking, let's just, let's don't talk Christian, let's just, let's just talk the natural order of, of, uh, of democracy. The whole flow of culture begins with pr- certain presuppositions. Those presuppositions are what we call our worldview. Your worldview is developed by the family structure that you come from for the most part, and there's nothing wrong with that. God intended the family to be the foundation stone of how we draw our concepts. But God also intended us, as we get older, to examine our worldview and find out if it is true or not. That's why the Scripture tells us that every man is responsible for truth. John chapter 1 says that the, the Lord lights every man who comes into the world. Romans chapter 1 says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We know the truth in our hearts because God's eternal power and Godhead, His deity is manifested to us even in creation so that we're never with, we never have an excuse for not seeking truth, not knowing truth. But <clears throat> the presuppositions of our worldview can cause us to build certain self-protective mechanisms that fight against hearing the truth. That's why the preaching of the gospel is so important. When the gospel is preached and it penetrates that, that structure and reaches in and disturbs our world, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that our 
the preaching of the gospel is not meant to inform as much as it is meant to disturb. It is meant to disturb. John Wesley said when the gospel is preached, there ought to be either a revival or a riot. And if there's not one or the other, you're not preaching the gospel. So when we talk about a Christian worldview that America has been founded on and so forth, we're talking about uh, pre presuppositions, but they're not just presuppositions that were handed down uh, family to family. They are well-examined presuppositions. They are, they are presuppositions that have stood the test of time. Uh, and as a result of those presuppositions, we were able to build a system of life in the last 200 years that fed most of the world, protected much of the world, even when we were not supposed to be protecting much of the world, and provided a launching pad for the gospel in every nation on the face of the earth. Now, what we are now facing is the change of our worldview, a frightening change in the way people view the world. When most of you in this room were children, there were certain things that were just automatically wrong. You didn't have to ask anybody. There was just a knowing within. It, there was just a, a logical awareness of certain things being right, certain things being wrong. Uh, nowadays, it's not uncommon for a 13 or 14-year-old to be taken into a police station and for the police to discover that the, the, the boy in question, or girl sometimes, does not seem to have a structure by which to determine right or wrong. Now, uh, Nicholas Berdiev says about this, I, I love this quote. He says, We live in an insane world. We have failed to see that man has become insane. The world is again in the grip of polydemonism from which Christianity had once rescued it. Sin will make you crazy. And it has caused an insanity to be set in motion in our culture that only the church can rescue people from, the real church. But you see, most of the American church is part of the insanity. You talk about dysfunctional families, people coming from dysfunctional families. You know what many churches are? They're one big conglomeration of dysfunctional family, and they've, they, they've all come together to get their needs met. That's pretty frightening, especially if you're on the counseling staff for pastoral leadership. You talk about burnout. You talk about getting weary quick, having no ability to sustain the pressure. No wonder pastors are burning out. You see, there was a time in our culture, folks, when the church was responsible to train people spiritually. But people were trained educationally by the school system, and they were trained socially and emotionally and morally by the family. But with the demise of the family and, and so much of our culture, with the disintegration of the family and the disintegration of the educational system, it has now fallen the, the, the unfortunate responsibility of the local church to try to train people not only how to walk with God, but how to pay their bills, how to brush their teeth, when to take a bath, how to function in marriage, how to function in society. It is an impossible task. And so something has got to happen beyond what we know as church as usual in America. God, I believe, is forcing us into a position where church as usual will never work. 
We are now facing a situation in our culture where the church has got to maintain a prophetic stance. The church has got to move in the supernatural. The church has got to move under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The church has to have supernatural wisdom that it cannot get from seminary. The church has got to be dependent on the living presence of Jesus manifested in every local congregation. And then Christ will be manifested through his church to the world and the world will know that he's the son of God. So the pressure that we are under now is a God-given pressure. It may be demonically inspired and it may be demonically energized, but God is the one who sovereignly allowed it in order to bring forth what he intended the church to be all along. Now, there's never been a time when people were under more pressure. Uh, You know, I'll chase the rabbit here for a minute, but... Have you ever thought about some of the psychoanalysis that might have to be uh, given to some of the people in the Bible? What what kind of therapy do you think Joseph should have to go through to ever come through the agony of his life? Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not anti-therapy and I'm not anti-counseling. But one of the reasons our counseling load is so heavy in the church uh, of the United States is because we have a worldview that does not include suffering. It's not a Christian worldview. You say it's a humanistic worldview. It's an existentialist worldview. It's a make me happy, take care of me now. I must have, I must have what I need now mentality. Uh, and as I mentioned a while ago, Jesus warned us in Mark chapter 4 that there would come a time when, uh, of course, the Apostle Paul says there'll come a time when men will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll gather to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears and say the things they want to hear. Uh, and Jesus warned in Mark chapter 4 that the sower will sow the word, the devil will come immediately to steal that word, and when persecution and affliction arise because of the word that was sown, many will be offended and will turn away. Jesus is supposed to heal me. Jesus is supposed to take care of all my needs. Jesus is supposed to bring my wife back. Jesus is supposed to keep my business from failing. And none of that is really guaranteed in scripture. You know, there's one scripture that definitely does guarantee you will have persecution and affliction. One scripture definitely does guarantee that through much tribulation you must enter the kingdom. There's plenty of scripture that guarantees struggle and pain and promises to be with us in the midst of that pain. But the American gospel bypassed those scriptures and like a smorgasbord, handed out only the ones people liked, only the ones they found palatable. And as a result of that, we have produced a generation of Christians in America that were not prepared for pain and not prepared for struggle. Their worldview did not include suffering. In fact, it breaks my heart to know this, but one of our Romanian connections told me to my face, she said, please pray that some of the American evangelists will stay home and not come to our country. I said, why? She said, they're coming over and telling our people that if we had had real faith, we would have never suffered. It's really hard for me to contain myself about that. I'd like to go off on that for about 10 minutes, but I'm trying to behave myself. So with that kind of arrogance, you know, ignorance is bad and arrogance is bad. When you put them two to, the two together, you come up with a real pitiful situation. And uh, that's what we've got in America right now for the most part. Well, what I was saying a while ago about worldview and about 
the development of, of the American system. And I don't have time to explain this in great detail, but, but we get our whole legal system from the Greco-Roman world. The Greco-Roman world fell apart basically for seven, uh, there are seven basic characteristics in the fall of Rome. I mentioned to you a while ago in several of the quotes that I read to you a while ago about the fact that our, the judgment of God is not lightning bolts out of the sky, but it is allowing a nation to take its own route, allowing a people to do their own thing, allowing a people to just go their own way and not bothering them, not invading them with a prevenient grace anymore. That's the judgment of God. And that judgment came justly on the Roman Empire. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1. That's what Romans chapter 1 is talking about. It's talking about the impending judgment of God on a culture that has chosen to honor the creature instead of the creator. Uh, but I'll get to that more in a minute. Greco-Roman law, the rule of law, was the foundation stone of our republic. I have a friend who is a professor of law, was a professor of law at the University of Alabama. He's working on a book on the transcendency of law, the absolute necessity of law being understood as having transcendent roots. You understand what I mean by transcendency? Transcendency means that law is not an earthly thing, that it has a greater power behind it, else it's not a law, it's a man-made rule. But real law is rooted in the eternal. And this law professor is attempting to approach this like, just like he would approach a, a case in court of confronting his, his uh, uh, fellow lawyers with the fact that there is no such thing as law apart from transcendent reality. Therefore, to disregard the author of law is to destroy all law which is exactly what we've done. That's exactly what we've done. We're in the biggest philosophical mess you can imagine legally because there's no transcendent reality making the law have any meaning. Law has no meaning if it's not rooted in transcendent reality. So the, Gre the Greco-Roman world, even though it collapsed, did give us a certain understanding of the foundation stones of law. And from that, we were able to build our society but what happened to Rome? Paul says in Romans chapter 1, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into a creature made with hands. And as a result, God gave them over, turned them over to a reprobate mind. So that finally, by the time you get to the end of Romans chapter 1, you, you see Paul listing every kind of broken behavior imaginable. Uh, let me give you the seven basic steps or the seven basic symptoms of the decline of Rome. Number one, no transcendent reality in which to root the meaning of life. No transcendent reality in which to root the meaning of life. It's one of the most depressing things you could do is to sit and read some of the late Roman philosophers. 
depression, meaninglessness, hopelessness. You see, there was a time when even the uh, Greco-Roman pantheism did give them some kind of transcendent reality, even though it was paganism. It was still rooted in some kind of truth, you see. Uh, Every now and then, they would tap into the real. They would touch the real. Uh, I don't want to get off on this right now, but some linguists believe that Zeus is actually a uh, uh, deriva- uh, derivation from the word theos, which is the Greek word for God. Of course, Zeus was the king of the gods. And it's believed by some linguists that theos and Zeus were at one time the same word and that there was a time in the early days of Greece when there was not a pantheon. There was only belief in one living true God. Now, that, that's, that actually is reflected in Scripture. Because when Paul speaks in Acts chapter 17 of uh, the God with the, 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 the God with no name, he's referring to an event that was fairly well known in the early church and fairly well known uh, throughout the ancient world. About 300 years before the incarnation, uh, a plague broke out in Athens as a result of Athens breaking a covenant with a neighboring city-state, and they murdered many of the people in the city-state, and a plague broke out as a result of their their murdering the people. And uh, you remember Paul quoting, where Paul quotes in Titus, he says, one of one of your own prophets says that the Christians are are uh, evil, slow-bellied beasts. Remember him quoting that. Uh, and then he also quoted that same poet. It's a Greek poet that he's quoting. And uh, he says, even one of your own poets says, uh, in him you live and move and have your being. He's quoting there from an ancient Greek poet. That poet lived on an island off the coast of Greece. And when the plague broke out in Athens, they contacted him. Now, the word poet is very close to the word prophet. And the function of a poet and the function of a prophet are very similar. The difference is the poet receives his direction from the muse and the prophet receives his direction from either the Holy Spirit or whatever spirit he's operating under that controls him. So you don't follow poetry as if it was prophecy. But the point is, uh, this poet evidently was more than a poet. He was a prophet of God who came to Athens and told them that they had offended the true and living God. And they said, which God are you talking about? And he said, the true and living God. None of these are gods. So they built an altar and repented before the unknown God. And uh, to commemorate that event, built an altar to the unknown God. And when Paul, hundreds of years later, came into Athens and saw that platform, he said, this is the God I want to talk to you about. See, he was not unaware of the history of these people. So I'm just saying that in their ignorance and in their pagan darkness, they still had a semblance of truth, even in the worship of a pantheon. The worship of anything above man gives man a certain psychological and sociological strength that he does not have if he's atheistic. 
And so in the early days of Greece and Rome, they survived as a nation because they were theistic, even if it was a pagan theism. When that was gone, these seven events followed quickly. I've already given you the first one. Number one, no transcendent reality in which to root firmly. Before I give you the other six, I want to read to you from Vaclav Havel, who is the president of Czechoslovakia, concerning our present situation. Listen to this. He says, I'm persuaded that this present global crisis, this conflict that we're in, is directly related to the spiritual condition of modern civilization. This condition is characterized by a sense of loss. The loss of metaphysical certainties of an experience of the transcendental, of any super-personal moral authority, and of any kind of higher horizon. As soon as man began considering himself the source of the highest meaning in the world and the measure of everything, the world began to lose its human dimension and man began to lose control of it. We are going through a great departure from God, which has no parallel in history. As far as I know, we are living in the first atheistic civilization. This arrogant anthropocentrism of modern man is in the background of the present crisis. We must have a change in human consciousness in the very humanness of modern man or we will perish. President of Czechoslovakia. Now, at the same time he was making that statement, the United States was... Uh, sitting around, you know, trying to decide whether to uh, uh, let a man in the Supreme Court uh, because he may have the pernicious arrogance to believe that a woman should not murder her baby. East and West have traded places. The first has become last, the last has become first. Uh, while there are court cases right now in this country going on to, for children to fight for their right to gather around a flagpole and pray, The governments of Czechoslovakia, Romania, and Hungary have made it absolutely mandatory for Bible to be taught to all grades. First shall be last, the last shall be first. Anyway, number two, characteristics of the end of a civilization. As a result of no transcendent reality, as a result of not having any roots in transcendent reality, number two, they were reduced to their appetites. If man has no spirit, all he's got is his stomach and his genitals. That's all he is. Even dogs and cats and monkeys can be taught some manners. But men and women who lose all transcendent value are, are not restrainable. You can teach a dog to behave better than you can teach a pagan who has no regard whatsoever for any authority. See, a dog, a dog will honor authority. Reduced to the appetites, sexual appetites, violence, sensual gratification. Sexual, violence, and sensual gratification. It was long after the demise of the early glory of Rome, before the Colosseums arose. It was, early Rome knew nothing of the Colosseum. They did not worship the emperor there was a sense of family. There was a sense of community responsibility in the early Roman days. 
But by the time you begin to see the decline of the Roman Empire, the characteristics of that decline do not look one whit different from where we are right now in our culture. Not a bit different. And yet I have stood in college campuses and I have stood in college classrooms and heard professors disregard the parallels between our two cultures, especially sociologists. I'll get on sociologists Thursday night, so I'm going to leave that alone for now. There are a few Christian sociologists. Every now and then you'll run across one. Every now and then you'll run across one who's not uh, an arrogant, small-minded humanist. But for the most part, sociology has got some real problems, which I won't discuss tonight. I will Thursday night, though. Anyway, <clears throat> reduced to the appetites, and when that happens, then uh, every kind of sexual invention you can think of becomes the, uh, the function of the day. Uh, now, anytime the, sex, the sexual appetite begins... See, when man exalts himself as God, Romans 1 says... By exalting himself, he ends up doing what? Because he worshiped, he did not worship God, but worshiped himself. He became vain in his imaginations. His foolish heart was darkened. Professing himself to be wise, he became a fool. Changed the glory of the incorruptible God to a creature made with hands. And then what did he, what did he begin to do? He began to worship less than he was. First he worshiped man. Then he worshiped four-footed beasts. Then he worshiped creeping things. Reminds you of T.S. Eliot's statement about man progressively walking backwards. Man, four-footed beasts, creeping things. Finally, in all pagan cultures, if man dishonors God, he eventually worships his own sex organs. And you say, well, it can't get much worse than that. Well, yeah, it can. After the worship of the sex organs, he begins to worship in blood sacrifice. And so uh, by, the, by the middle of the uh, second century of Christianity, by the time you get under Diocletian, and uh, then later on under Domitian, human sacrifice had become pretty common in the Roman culture. It was not common in the early days of Rome. It became more common. They worshipped especially what was called the Lucan, the cult of the wolf, which is nothing but a Roman version of ancient Baal worship. The worship was uh, carried on by the worship of the male sex organ, homosexual and heterosexual orgies, and finally, the sacrifice of children and adults. Now, this is, this is what went on spiritually. Of course, publicly, you could go down to the arena and uh, uh, watch the murder of slaves and the murder of gladiators. And the more the blood flowed, the better they liked it. See, sex gets real boring after a while. And then Baal doesn't want sex anymore. He wants blood. And of course, the, the name of the demon spirit who wants blood is not Baal, but Moloch. They are the same spirit. Two faces of the same spirit. Uh, the third manifestation of the decline of the Roman Empire was total apathy. The inability to motivate the, the populace into any meaningful activity. Now we don't so much have that characteristic in our culture 
if you look at it from a distance, it seems like everybody's as busy as ants on an anthill. Everybody's involved with something, but when you get to the core of most people's lives, you find underneath all that busyness a meaningless, hopeless apathy that is covered over with addictive behavior, food, sex, drugs, occultism, quest for power. Underneath it all, though, a hopeless apathy and depression. They keep the busyness going because if they don't stay busy, the apathy will come up full face. And once they face the apathy, there's nothing to do but die. So they just stay busy to keep from dying. Number four, this is an interesting characteristic of the fall of Rome. Artistic mediocrity followed by government-sponsored filth in the arts. I don't even need to comment on that, do I? Number five, a financial dependence on the state. And of course, this leads to a certain kind of chaos. When the government is responsible for the care of people, the people become more and more dependent on the government. The government cannot continually keep that going because the government is kept supplied by the work of the people. If the work of the people is not producing, the government runs low. If the government runs low and the people are drawing from the government, then you end up with uh, two ticks trying to have dinner with each other with no dog. And as a result, there is eventually complete collapse. When the collapse takes place, the freedoms that produced the collapse are crushed because the only thing that can survive, uh, the only thing that can prop the government up now is total authoritarianism. <coughs> total authoritarianism. Once total authoritarianism is, is uh, in control, uh, all freedom is gone. Now, the, the, the misuse of freedom is what produces the rise of the totalitarian state. Humanism has a death wish. Humanism stands and continually whacks away at the, the pillars that hold up the freedoms that allow humanists to believe in humanism. You see? You see how suicidal, insane it is? I, I can't think of anything more insipid than the burning of the American flag. Or, or the legalization of it, the, to, to make it legally permissible to burn the symbol of freedom that allows them to burn a flag. See, you're talking about cutting off your nose to spite your face. Well, finally, the collapse occurs. Now, let me back up just a little bit in the time that we've got left. How much time do we have left? About, uh, in the time that we've got left, I want to show you the great danger of a post-Christian America. Jesus, and I don't have time to cover this the way I'd like to, but I'll just mention it, and I may go into it in more detail later on. But <laughs> remember in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus is speaking and the Pharisees come and challenge him and they say to him, uh, you cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus said, a house divided against itself can't stand. If Satan cast out Satan, how then can his kingdom stand? But if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then uh, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And then he begins to tell them a story. 
He says, an unclean spirit goes out of a man and walks through dry places seeking for rest and finding no rest, returns back to his place where he was cast out and says, I will return to my house from which I was cast out. And he will take seven more spirits worse than himself back to that house. Now, we always hear that verse. Most of you have heard that verse used as the foundation for the teaching on the subject of deliverance from evil spirits, right? But if you read that chapter, that's not the context. I mean, there's nothing wrong with using that verse but that way, but the context of, of the statement is something much more frightening. The context is, just like an individual is delivered from evil spirits and then doesn't get right with God and is, is a vacuum on the inside, and the evil spirit comes back and brings seven times more with him. Jesus, if, if you read the, the verse, we don't have time to turn to it now, but if you read the verse, Jesus says to them, so also shall it be with this generation. What does that mean? That means I have come to you. I have delivered you from the power of Satan and you have rejected it. And he will come back seven times more. And the last state of you as a nation will be seven times worse than the first because I came to you and you rejected me. What is post-Christian? It means after Christ. So when we say that we are living in post-Christian America, what do we mean? We mean we are living in a nation that has had the gospel preached and it has been rejected. And now we are up for grabs for seven times worse judgment. In Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus in the time of temptation, the enemy comes to him and says to him, uh, you know, the, you know, the story of the temptations. And Jesus turns to, to Satan and says to him, get behind me. It was at the point of temptation where Satan said, all these nations will I give you and the glory of them if you will just worship me. And Jesus says, get behind me. The Greek says something more detailed. It says, follow after me. In other words, no. I'll be Lord of all the nations. I'll be preached into all the nations for a witness. And then wherever I have been rejected, you follow after me. You can have what's left. So when we talk about America being post-Christian America, it's a pretty frightening concept. It means Christ has been presented for 150 years, 200 years of our history. Christ has been presented and presented and presented. Now, and he's been rejected, and uh, uh, another spirit can come in now. Now, that's just one view of this. I want you to hold that in store, because there are, there's another aspect of this that I'll bring in later in our lectures. And I just want to mention it right now in closing. This is true, but it's only true in those places where Christ has really been presented. There are places where Christ has not been really presented. What's been presented is a religious facade and the real Christ, the real Jesus, has not been preached with power and, 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 and reality. And 
One of the reasons for the influx of the New Age movement has been because the church has been so unable to move in real healing power. That when the church has not moved in real power, in has flowed the New Age movement to fill the gap. And God's not so much holding the pagans responsible for that as he is the church. See? Of course, the church would like to always hold the pagans responsible for everything. But judgment begins at the house of God. Okay, so to just summarize what we're talking about tonight, we have a very clear picture of the fact that the United States and the Western world as a whole, free Europe and the, and the English-speaking nations also, have had a loss of our worldview. Our worldview has been changed. It has been changed periodically by the loss of transcendent value, by a sinking and despair into our physical appetites, an attempt to find our meaning in our physical bodies, to find our meaning in uh, our physical relationships. This has led to despair and apathy. And whenever there is despair and apathy, an inroad to evil spirits and principalities and powers is made, and the powers of darkness flow right in, and the transcendent values that are not there are replaced by transcendent evils, supernatural, energized, demonic evils, and then the collapse of a whole society. We are already at the end of this scenario. See, there's not anywhere else to go. The only thing left is for the church to stand up and take its rightful place as representatives of real transcendent reality and manifest that transcendent reality into the earth. In other words, to say it more plain old Kentucky English, without the Holy Ghost and the supernatural power of God manifested through the church into the earth in supernatural confrontation of supernatural demonic evil, the church is not going to make it. Seminary has never trained anybody to handle what we've got to handle in the 90s. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, equip us, Lord, for what's coming, what's already here. Awaken us to our dependence on you, Lord. Programs and education are good in their place, but Father, without your supernatural anointing, without your power resting on us, we are hopeless. We are absolutely hopeless. We cannot stand against what's coming in the close of the age without your power and your presence. We thank you that you have not left us. You have never left us, but we have left you. We have arrogantly turned to our education and our own personalities and our own prowess and our own ability to sway a crowd, our own ability to win an argument. We've not depended on your presence. And as a result, we've not made any changes in our culture. We have actually let our culture change us. Holy Spirit, have mercy. Christ, have mercy, Lord. We know that you will have mercy because you said you who begun a good work in us will finish it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.